This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. All of us contain music and truth, but most of us can't get it out. Mark Twain. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing American humorist and author Mark Twain, one of the most famous writers of the late 18 and early 1900s, who's still widely read today. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. Around the turn of the 20th century, the most famous man in the United States was arguably Samuel Langhorne Clemens. But you might not have heard of him, because Samuel Langhorne Clemens was the real name of author, humorist, lecturer, and world-class fabulist Mark Twain. That's right. Mark Twain is an invented name, one of many that Sam Clemens tried out over the course of his writing career. He first used it in 1863 when he was 27 years old. But who was Sam Clemens before he became Mark Twain? Huh? Let's find out. Samuel Langhorne Clemens was born on November 30, 1835, in Florida, Missouri, almost two months premature and sickly from the start. He was the sixth of seven children born to Jane Lampton and John Marshall Clemens. Jane was from a prominent family in Kentucky, and John was an Easterner from a wealthy slave-owning family in Virginia. Jane was considered to be not only one of the most beautiful women in the county, but also one of the funniest. John was more sober, studious, and upright. He trained to be a lawyer and practiced law for a time, but he jumped careers as the family moved ever west, becoming, always without real success, a store owner, a farmer, a justice of the peace, and a postmaster. Of John and Jane's seven children, only four would survive to adulthood. The oldest son, Orion, the oldest daughter, Pamela, 
the youngest son, Henry, and, of course, Sam. By the time Sam was born, the family had left Tennessee to join relations of Jane's in Missouri. Slavery was legal in Missouri, and the Clemens were indeed slave owners. During Sam's childhood, the Clemens family owned a woman named Jenny and a man they called Uncle Ned. The family moved from the small town of Florida to the port town of Hannibal, Missouri. The people of Hannibal were colorful characters. They included wayward drunks, gamblers, and criminals, as well as the adventure seekers constantly passing through on their way westward or onto the river. It was this rough, ramshackle setting that inspired much of his most famous and lasting literary works, including, some you're sure to have heard of, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. But unlike Tom and Huck, young Sam suffered from poor health until he was eight. His mother even said of him, quote, When I first saw him, I could see no promise in him. He was a poor-looking object to raise. Harsh. (laughs) It was all in good fun. In fact, they would often tease one another with a long-running joke. Whenever she would tell stories about his childhood frailty, he would ask, Afraid I wouldn't live? And she'd always reply, No, afraid you would. Sam adored his mother and took after her in many ways, sharing her curiosity, her warmth, and her dry sense of humor with spot-on deadpan delivery. But he did get healthy. Around 1843, when he was eight, Sam was no longer quite so weak. He ran around Hannibal with the most rambunctious, troublemaking neighborhood boys, like he was making up for lost time. Sam developed a risk-taking, adventurous nature, as well as the big personality he was later known for. But even as a spirited youngster, he could be withdrawn, aloof, and cynical. It was only a few years later, in 1847, when Sam was 11 years old, that his father, John, died of pneumonia. This prompted young Sam to leave school after the fifth grade. He would never return to formal schooling. He got a job as a printer's apprentice, which prepared him to work as a typesetter. Typesetters physically set all the individual letters or type in the right order to print a page. His brother, Orion, 10 years older than Sam, was also in the printing business at the time. He owned the local paper, the Hannibal Journal, and Sam occasionally contributed articles and funny sketches to the publication. In 1853, when he was 18, Sam left Hannibal to travel east, finding work as a printer as he went, seeing St. Louis, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and New York City. He took a liking to New York especially, wandering around with an emergency $10 bill sewn into the lining of his jacket. He recognized that New York was a place that made people, but he didn't return to the city for more than a decade. You'd think he would have stayed in the city, given how much he liked it then. But Sam couldn't relinquish what he called the one permanent ambition among his comrades growing up. It was a dream that called him back west. He wanted to be a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi River. Steamboat traffic up and down the Mississippi was the lifeblood of the frontier. People and supplies were in constant motion up and down its 2,300 miles of wide, tortuous waterways. 
the steamboats were of unquestionable importance, and the pilot, more than the captain, was the prestige role. Right. The pilot was the one responsible for the safe passage of everyone and everything aboard. The river was dangerous, full of sharp turns, reefs, sunken wrecks, down trees, and sudden shallows and swells. Beyond knowing how to navigate all that, Sam later wrote, the pilot had to actually know where these things are in the dark. Probably didn't hurt that pilots were also well paid for their trouble and training, between $150 and $200 a month. Uh, I wouldn't even get out of bed for $200 a month. You would if it was the 1850s. That salary is equivalent to about $5,000 today. Oh, I'd get out of bed for that. But this wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme. From 1857 to 1859, Sam trained to be a steamboat pilot under the guidance of the famous Horace Bixby. Bixby was best known for his unusually fast pace up and down the river and for maintaining his speed without sacrificing the safety of his vessel and passengers. Much to Bixby's chagrin, he even became famous outside the steamboat community after Sam would write about him later in life. Piloting a steamboat was risky for the reasons we've already mentioned, but even the boats themselves routinely proved to be dangerous. The ship's boilers, which made their eponymous steam, were known to explode, seemingly without warning, and the wooden vessels were susceptible to fires. While Sam was training, he convinced his younger brother, 20-year-old Henry, to join him as a mud clerk on the steamboat Pennsylvania. Mud clerks were kind of like unpaid interns. They ran errands and did odd jobs for no pay, but were considered to be in line for promotion to other positions. At 23 years old, Sam was the junior pilot of the boat from September 1857 to June 5, 1858, after which he left Henry aboard. Just eight days later, on June 13th, on the river near Memphis, Tennessee, four of the Pennsylvania's eight boilers exploded. Of the 450 passengers aboard, an estimated 250 died in the initial explosion and fire. Henry survived the accident, but his skin and lungs were scalded severely. Sam rushed to Memphis to be with his brother and sat with him day and night in the public hall that was serving as a makeshift hospital for about 30 survivors. For a time, it appeared that Henry would rally, but one night he was particularly restless, and Sam begged a young doctor to give him morphine to ease his pain. The doctor hesitated, saying that he had no way of measuring the correct dosage in this informal setting. Sam persisted. The doctor relented and gave Henry morphine. Henry died before morning, only a week after the accident. Whether his death was from an overdose of morphine is impossible to say, but Sam was never able to forgive himself. Tragedies like the Pennsylvania were part of the fabric of the frontier. Every settler west of the Mississippi had to come to terms with the boom and bust dynamic of the American West. There were fortunes to be found if you knew where to look, but catastrophes lurked around every corner. The tantalizing possibility of wild success and its probable proximity to utter desolation lent the towns and settlements a vital air. Live hard and live for today, because it could be your last. 
which brings us to one of the biggest catastrophes for frontier living at the time, the Civil War. When the Civil War began in 1861, the traffic up and down the Mississippi ground to a halt. Sam, then 25 years old, who loved his time on the river and became an accomplished pilot, was out of a job. So he did what any reckless young man would do. He volunteered for the war effort to fight for the South. Now, the Civil War didn't shape Sam's career like wars do in the traditional sense. He didn't have a long, illustrious service record. He wasn't decorated or promoted. Nope. He joined a local unit of irregular soldiers, or volunteer militia, with some carousing friends, spent two weeks camped in the rain and mud, and then ran off further west the second he heard Union forces were coming his way. Exactly. He treated it like a summer camp and quit as soon as it got serious. He didn't have any intention to die for either side. Sam's rash decision to join the war as a volunteer for the Confederacy, even for a measly two weeks, may come as a surprise. If you're familiar with The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which was written about 20 years after the Civil War, you might have thought he had always been an abolitionist. But remember, Sam's family were slave owners. While he later came to believe that slavery was a, quote, bald, grotesque, and unwarranted usurpation, end quote, he also says that he never heard it challenged growing up. Even the word abolitionist was considered abhorrent in his hometown of Hannibal, Missouri, and he'd witnessed abolitionists be set upon by mobs, beaten, and run out of town. Yeah. I think it would be a mistake to call Mark Twain an abolitionist in the true sense of the word. While he much later strongly espoused and propagated anti-slavery sentiments, it was only after the point was already somewhat moot. To paraphrase one of his biographers, he was an abolitionist, but there was nothing left to abolish. During the war, while Sam was further west, his Confederate and secessionist leanings did give way to Union sympathies but you'll still find lots of problematic ideas and terminology in his works. But let's keep going and talk about what he did do in 1861 when he ran out on that Confederate volunteer militia at age 25. He went west into the Nevada Territory to meet up with his brother Orion in Virginia City. Orion had worked on Abraham Lincoln's 1860 presidential campaign. He was given a stake in the territory as his payment, and he became the secretary to Nevada's governor in 1861. Virginia City was a rough, wild town full of drifters, grifters, and all manner of people looking to make a fast dollar, as well as folks who were just down on their luck. Even more so than the small towns in Missouri where Sam grew up, Virginia City was one of the true edges of Western civilization. He made himself at home there and was a heavy drinker and cigar smoker for the rest of his life. Sam, always looking for excitement, intended to be a silver miner in the Nevada Territory, which was then in a silver rush. But he was reportedly lousy at it. He just sat around telling stories to the other miners. He later recounted stories from his time in the Nevada mining camps in his book, Roughing It. At age 27, after utterly failing at mining, Sam was hired on to be a reporter and editor for the Virginia City newspaper called The Territorial Enterprise in July of 1862. 
when he realized that everything he was interested in writing couldn't be reported, strictly speaking, he started experimenting in fiction and in mixing fiction with reality. While most people were writing news, Sam was writing exaggerated accounts and stories, usually humorous and sometimes satirical. It was during these years in the Nevada Territory that Sam Clemens began adopting pen names when he wrote. That's right. Names. Plural. He didn't just come up with Mark Twain right away. I wish he had. Some of his other pen names were truly atrocious. Uh, Yeah. There was Grumbler, Rambler, Josh, and John Snooks. Sergeant Fathom, Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass, Quintius Curtius Snodgrass. And, are you ready? W. Epaminondas Adrastus Perkins and W. Epaminondas Adrastus Blab. Hard to say what he was really going for here, or why he finally decided on what he did, but thank goodness he picked Mark Twain. Definitely. Mark Twain made his debut on February 3rd, 1863, in a humorous letter to the paper complaining about a party that purportedly kept him awake for two days. Mark Twain was born. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to historical figures. So, in 1863, 27-year-old Sam Clemens finally became Mark Twain. There are two competing origins for the name. Here's the most popular one, and it harkens back to Sam's time as a steamboat pilot. Twain is another word for two, and two fathoms, or 12 feet, was the safe water depth for steamboats to pass. So, when the crew was navigating the river and measuring depth, if someone called out, Mark Twain, that meant, we've hit the two-fathom mark, it's safe to pass. Then there's the slightly less PG etymology. Virginia City was a hard-living and hard-drinking place. If a reveler like Sam called out, Mark Twain, to a bartender, it meant, mark me down for two drinks. Hmm, I'm not sure which one I believe. Why not both? Both stories seem to capture separate but accurate parts of his character. Sam could drink with the best of them. Fair enough. Anyway, Mark Twain's experiments in fiction for the territorial enterprise weren't always well-received. Definitely not. He once wrote a totally fictionalized account of something called the Empire City Massacre, in which he described a disgruntled man killing his wife and nine children. Despite the usual notes that this was a piece of fiction, 
Many people were offended by its gratuitous descriptions, and the situation worsened when several papers reprinted it as if it were factual. He also got into a lot of hot water with a hoax that implied the proceeds from a fundraiser for wounded Union soldiers would be improperly directed to a miscegenation society, meaning a group that promoted interracial relationships. There's that problematic sense of humor we mentioned. In the ensuing backlash in the spring of 1864, the editor of a competing paper, James Laird, repeatedly and publicly insulted Twain's character, prompting Twain to challenge him to a duel. Dueling was, in fact, illegal at the time, but that didn't stop many people in the lawless Nevada territory. The two men went back and forth, using their papers to call each other names and impugn one another's characters. It was the 1860s version of a Twitter war. Twain received four different dual challenges from the husbands of women in the ladies' society that was doing the fundraising for the Union soldiers. It all came to a head when one of these husbands, William Cutler, came to Virginia City to get Twain's answer. All this over the suggestion that fundraising dollars may be directed to people who believed in interracial relationships. By that time, Twain had already resolved to leave the territory and head further west. By his own account, he sent his most intimidating friend to meet Cutler and tell the angry husband that Twain was presently to leave the territory, which supposedly mollified the would-be dueler. So with that ignoble send-off, Twain fled to California in 1864. To San Francisco, in fact. While there, he continued to be a correspondent for the Territorial Enterprise, but he also wrote for other publications. The next year, he published what would be his first successful short story, one that would bring him national attention as it was reprinted in newspapers all over the U.S. It was a piece published under a few different titles, but it's known mostly as Jim Smiley and His Jumping Frog. It told the humorous tale of a gambler who trains a frog to jump, but is swindled by a stranger that feeds the frog lead buckshot. At the time, being reprinted in newspapers across the country was certainly a foot in the door to legitimacy and being published elsewhere. But it was hard then for an author to track where their work was being printed to even ensure they were being credited and compensated. Years later, Twain found a French translation of the story, and he retranslated it word for word verbatim back into English. He called this bizarre version of the story the jumping frog in English, then in French, and then clawed back into a civilized language once more by patient, unremunerated toil. While in San Francisco, he became interested in the poor treatment of Chinese immigrants. The general public used them as scapegoats for social struggles, while government officials reportedly took advantage of them by saddling them with imaginary taxes and fees. He also used his writing to decry the government corruption and police brutality he witnessed. Once more, his writing got him into trouble, and he was forced, again, to flee west for safety. Except continuing west meant wading straight into the Pacific, so... That's exactly what he did. In March of 1866, aboard the ship Ajax, he journeyed to the Sandwich Islands, what we would now call Hawaii, and traveled around for four months while writing letters for publication in the Sacramento Union newspaper under the name of Mark Twain. 
he explored Oahu, Maui, and the big island of Hawaii on horseback. He even met King Kamehameha V and witnessed lava flowing from an active volcano. How many Americans could say that? Only a few thousand foreigners had ever set foot on Hawaii at that point in history. Returning to California, Twain turned his letters and other observations into an only half-serious talk called the Sandwich Islands Lecture. The tickets and posters he used to advertise the lecture promoted ludicrous things like fireworks and circus animals. His tagline, doors open at 7, the trouble begins at 8. Later in his life, Twain would happily admit to making things up, or not actually remembering which of his memories were real or fake. So while the Sandwich Island lectures were certainly based on his real experiences in Hawaii, it would be hard for the audience to know just what exactly was real, which made them that much more exciting. His lectures in San Francisco filled a 1,500-seat theater, and he left audiences roaring with laughter. Reading this humorous transcript now, a modern audience would notice the pervasive ethnic insensitivity and cultural fetishism, but back then, the lecture was considered a rousing success. Twain may have been a cutting cynic in his personal correspondence, but his public persona was much more even-tempered. He presented his findings more as an amused scholar rather than a patronizing snob. He was 31, and his Mark Twain character was settling into a consistent personality, just lowbrow enough to make anyone feel comfortable, but worldly and traveled enough to lend an air of authority. He managed to strike a balance between being a confident man of the world and a naive boy routinely baffled and astonished by it. It helped that he had the same characteristic slow drawl as his mother, which both knew how to play for maximum comic effect. When he spoke, he was magnetic. Through his whole career, he had a singular way of making everyone in a room lean forward and listen. Around this time, Twain started thinking about having a family of his own. Quote, I want a good wife. I want a couple of them, if they're particularly good. In 1867, he went back east to New York City with this in mind. He certainly had a mixed reputation. He was the scoundrel journalist of the Nevada Territory, but also a lauded writer and reporter. Everyone knew his jumping frog story. He was able to get letters of introduction to many writers, newspapermen, and lecturers. Shortly after his arrival, through his association with the famed orator Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, he learned of a novel religious history pleasure cruise to Europe in the Middle East. It was the first of its kind to cross the Atlantic purely for leisure. The ship was a reused Civil War steamer called the Quaker City. And yes, Reverend Beecher was the father of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the abolitionist author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Twain finagled his way onto this exclusive six-month cruise and sent newspaper articles back to be published as he went. Later, the collected articles about the voyage would be his first best-selling book, The Innocents Abroad. In his characteristic irreverent but earnest tone, Twain recounts visiting famous historical and religious sites and his utter disgust at how they are being used for profiteering and the exploitation of rich, naive tourists. 
It was also on this voyage that another passenger, Charles Langdon, showed Twain a picture of his sister, Olivia, in an ivory portrait miniature. He was instantly smitten. When Twain returned to the States, he found that he had become somewhat famous in absentia. More than 50 of his letters had been published in the paper Alta California, and another half dozen in the New York Tribune. Their circulation was wide, and the public was excited to read such a unique travel account. Never before had something as honest and accessible been written about travel abroad. The month after the voyage's return, in December of 1867, Twain reunited with some of his sailing companions, including Charles Langdon. This time, Charles was in the company of his sister, Olivia, who was 10 years Twain's junior. Their first date, so to speak, was at Steinway Hall, where the Langdons and Twain went to hear Charles Dickens read from David Copperfield. (laughs) Beats dinner in a movie. After that, he was given an open invitation to stay with the Langdons in their hometown of Elmira, New York. But he didn't see Olivia, Livy as she was known, for months, though he did write and was already half in love with her. He had to go west to tend to some matters involving the upcoming publication of The Innocents Abroad. So his courtship was mostly on hold. When he did finally make it up to Elmira the following summer, he was soon convinced that Olivia Langdon was the one and only woman for him, if she would have him. The Langdons were a close-knit, well-to-do family who had made their fortune in coal. Livy was their pride and joy. When she was a teenager, she came down with a mysterious illness that left her bedridden and paralyzed for years. But she made a miraculous recovery, and the Langdons remained extremely protective of her. Twain played it cool for most of his first week-long visit to Elmira, endearing himself to Livy and the whole Langdon family. But on the day he was supposed to leave, he confessed his love for Livy to her brother, Twain's dear friend, Charlie. Charlie responded by offering to put him on an earlier train. You have to imagine that though Twain was becoming increasingly famous and prosperous, he was still something of an oddity in the East. He held and shared radical, unorthodox opinions, unvarnished by society manners. For the upper crust of New York and New England, he was still too rough around the edges to be truly one of them. The evening of his confession, when Twain and his friend set out for the train station, the carriage driver somehow forgot to secure the passenger seats of the carriage. When the horse started to move with a jolt, the back seat flipped over and dumped Twain and Langdon onto the ground. Neither was hurt seriously, but Twain saw no reason not to let the kind, solicitous Livy fret and fuss over his apparent injuries and nurse him back to health. Twain milked this into a few extra weeks with the Langdons. A few months later, in early 1868, while visiting other friends from the Quaker City voyage, Twain confessed to them his utter lovesickness over Livy. He said, quote, I am in love beyond all telling with the dearest and best girl in the whole world. I don't suppose she will marry me. I can't think it possible. She ought not to. But if she doesn't, I shall be sure that the best thing I ever did was to fall in love with her and proud to have it known that I tried to win her, end quote. And try he did. His first marriage proposal 
was rejected by both Livy and her father, Jervis Langdon. Livy liked him, to be sure, but it was more a fascination and admiration than attraction, at least at first. As for her father's rejection, it wasn't for any lack of warmth and affection. The elder Langdon liked Twain very much, but he was doubtful the boisterous, wandering Westerner was the right match for his conservative, delicate daughter. Though discouraged, Twain did not give up completely and began to slowly win over members of the family. Oddly enough, the only one he couldn't win over was his friend Charlie, who was so distressed by the situation at home that he went on a voyage around the world to avoid watching Twain woo his sister. As Livy continued to warm to Twain, Jervis Langdon decided to do some more serious vetting of Twain if he was indeed going to be his son-in-law. He asked Twain to provide references from his past who could speak to his character. Twain gave him the names of clergy and other friends he had known in California. While he courted Livy and waited on his references, Twain embarked on a few lecture tours to make a little money and found growing fame and prosperity. He was an elevated everyman, relatable yet admirable. His humor, though witty and wry, was inclusive. You were always in on the joke. In the write-ups about his lectures in newspapers across the country, he was considered a man on the rise. In early 1869, his references delivered. Twain hurried to Elmira to hear the verdict. What ensued was reported by Twain's first authorized biographer, Albert Bigelow Payne, to whom he was close in the last years of his life. When Jervis Langdon took him aside to deliver the news, he had a solemn look, worrying the suitor. Twain asked what his references had written about him. Langdon said, quote, They agree unanimously that you are a brilliant, able man, a man with a future, and that you would make about the worst husband on record. End quote. Twain was crestfallen. Langdon asked quickly if he had any other friends who could recommend him, but Twain sadly knew that he had offered up his best bets and said no, he hadn't another friend. You have at least one, Langdon replied, holding out his hand. I believe in you. I know you better than they do. Langdon saw just how devoted Twain had been to Livy, writing her over 200 letters in the past two years. He saw firsthand how Twain admired her, and he saw how she inspired warmth and optimism in Twain. There is no doubt in any account of Twain's life, Livy was his world. He devoted himself to her, to their marriage, and to their family for the rest of her life. She became his lifelong editor too, starting with the proofs of The Innocents Abroad, which came in around the time of their engagement in February 1869. Despite the eventual enormous success of The Innocents Abroad, Twain didn't consider himself a literary man. He was a journalist first and foremost. He began looking to acquire some stake in a newspaper and settle down fully. He found that opportunity in the Buffalo Express, which was close to Elmira. Twain was offered the chance to buy a one-third stake in the paper for $25,000, which he purchased with the help of some financing from his soon-to-be father-in-law. The wedding was set for the following February, and in the ensuing year, Twain edited at the Express and took lecture engagements. 
He sought to secure boarding in Buffalo for himself and Livy for when they moved there, following their marriage. Unbeknownst to him, Livy had already arranged with her father to buy and furnish a beautiful house on the nicest street in town. The two were married on February 2, 1870, at the Langdon Estate, by the nearly as famous brother of Henry Ward Beecher, Thomas K. Beecher. The following afternoon, they set off for Buffalo with a few friends, the bride's parents, and Twain's sister and niece who had journeyed from the West. When they arrived in Buffalo and piled into sleighs to be driven to what Twain thought was a boarding house, the couple arrived last, only to have the doors of the most beautiful house on the street flung open by their friends and family, light streaming from within, decorations adorning the walls. Twain was dazed and utterly perplexed and could not understand the turn of events until Livy took his arm and explained that it was all theirs, a gift. It was a fortuitous beginning. In a letter to her sister, Susan Crane, Livy wrote, quote, Our days seem to be made up of only bright sunlight with no shadows in them, end quote. But that sunshine wouldn't last. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And now back to the story. Mark Twain and his new wife, Livy, were married in February of 1870, but the new family's happiness was quickly checked by Livy's father's failing health. From March of 1870 until August, his health wavered, and he finally passed. As a comfort, a friend of Livy's came to Buffalo to stay with them, but she fell sick with typhoid and also died. It was only a few months later that Livy gave birth to the couple's first child, Langdon, but he was premature and sickly. Following his birth, Livy had a months-long recovery from childbirth and then caught typhoid. Their unhappiness, now associated with Buffalo, shortened their time there. Besides, Twain's enthusiasm for journalism began to wane. In 1871, at age 35, he sold his house and his stake in the Buffalo Express and relocated back to Elmira with his sick wife and child to be with the Langdon family. It was a convalescence for Livy and Langdon, but also something of one for Twain. He became interested in his fiction again and dedicated himself to writing another book, which would become Roughing It, about his time in the West. The family then took up residence in Hartford, Connecticut, and in March of 1872, the couple's second child, Susan Olivia, Susie, was born. 
But just three months later, little two-year-old Langdon died of diphtheria. Like with the death of his brother Henry, Twain blamed himself. He traced his son's illness back to an afternoon when he had been careless driving around with him in the carriage and his blanket had slipped off, exposing the boy to chill. This, of course, was a grief-stricken father's conscience talking. Livy was heartbroken, naturally. She wrote that she felt, quote, as if my path is to be lined with graves, end quote, and said that she wished to precede her husband and sister into the grave so as to avoid the pain of their passings. In fact, she eventually would. But despite these personal tragedies, Twain's professional star continued to rise, and in 1874 and 1880, his other daughters, Clara and Jean, were born and raised in Hartford. In the two decades following his relocation to Connecticut, Twain would write many of his most famous works there and in Elmira where the family summered. In Elmira, his sister-in-law built him a study that looked like a steamboat's pilot house. It was there that Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were born. Always enchanted by new technologies and inventions, he befriended Nikola Tesla, spending time in his lab. Video footage of Twain shot by Thomas Edison on a visit to his home is thought to be the only film of the author. Twain even dipped his toe into inventing things, creating a successful self-adhesive scrapbook. A scrapbooker himself, he was tired of dealing with glue. As he grew more and more prominent, he began endorsing products, everything from sewing machines to cigars. He became the most famous man in America, read in every corner of the nation, and one of the country's first real celebrities, putting the name Mark Twain on just about anything guaranteed that people would buy it. It may seem like we're suddenly zooming through large swaths of time, but knowing where to stop detailing Mark Twain's life, which was meticulously recorded, is difficult to judge. He traveled widely, especially for the time period, and so many of his experiences he chronicled himself in letters, lectures, and essays, or mixed with invented tales and characters in his books and short stories. His biographers have written many thousands of pages about the man, starting just a few years after his death and continuing up to today. Twain, never at a loss for words, even wrote his own autobiography that fills several sprawling volumes. And remember, he was super famous, and he relished his fame, perhaps seeing it as a marker of how far he had risen in status by his own efforts. So he wasn't shy about the spotlight or staying in the public eye. The press followed him around incessantly, sought his comment, which he was happy to give, even on trivial matters, and fastidiously reported his comings and goings. Right. Twain was and is an extremely well-documented person. And it's nearly impossible to create a full picture of him, even if this podcast were five hours long. That's why we just have to say it. The best way to get to know the life and mind of Mark Twain, warts and all, is to read him. He's left plenty of material, 13 finished fiction novels, seven books of semi-nonfiction, several dozen collections of short stories and essays, a play, some poems, a children's book, plus 
Who even knows how many articles and letters in total published under Mark Twain and other names over the years? And as you know, here at Historical Figures, we like to focus on the little-known facts. This period of Twain's life, the period in which he was producing his most lauded works, the height of his celebrity, is probably the most well-known. So let's skip ahead a bit to June of 1891. A time that found the renowned author, then 55, down on his luck. After 21 years of married family life, a few of Twain's adventurous and unwise decisions caught up to him and his family. His unbridled enthusiasm for science and technology led him to invest in many inventions over the years, including something called the Page Compositor, a typesetting machine meant to replace the human labor that Twain knew all too well from his youth. Supposedly, Twain sunk between two hundred dollars to $300,000 into the machine, about seven or eight million today, and it represented much of his earnings from his literary career and some of his wife's inheritance. The machine was fast, but suffered constant breakdowns and never realized its full potential. By the time it might have paid off, the page compositor was rendered obsolete by the linotype machine. This investment had proved disastrous to the family's finances. So in June of 1891, they decided to sell their lavish house in Hartford and move to Europe to save money. Twain had also lost money on the small publishing house he'd founded with his niece's husband, Charles L. Webster and Company. To be fair, the enterprise had a promising start. It published the U.S. version of Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in 1885, and in the same year published the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, the famed Union general and two-term U.S. president. But Grant's presidency had been marred by corruption and scandal, not least of which was his well-known alcoholism. Grant's family was in dire straits financially in the mid-1880s, and Grant himself was dying of throat cancer. Twain urged him to publish his memoirs, which went on sale shortly after Grant's death, and presented his widow with an unheard-of royalty check from the sales, $200,000. Twain is considered to have saved the family from destitution. No matter its auspicious start, Charles L. Webster and Company then published a real clunker, the biography of Pope Leo XIII. It sold a whopping 200 copies. Yikes. Uh, so the failed publishing house, plus the bad investments, meant the Clemens clan was off to Europe, where they stayed for several years, from 1891 to 1894. It was during this time that the youngest daughter, Jean, was diagnosed with epilepsy at the age of 15. Her parents used their time in Europe to seek various novel treatments for her, including putting her on a diet that limited meat and sugar. Unfortunately, Jean continued to suffer from seizures during this time, and she exhibited violent mood swings. And the doctor's visits weren't helping with the family's financial situation. The resolution to Twain's money problems came in late 1893, when he met Henry Huddleston Rogers, a principal of Standard Oil, who would become his financial consultant. Rogers convinced him that the best thing to do would be to file for bankruptcy, transfer all his copyrights to Livy so his creditors couldn't seize them, and embark on a worldwide lecture tour to pay his debts once and for all. 
And at age 60, he did just that. The tour took about a year, taking him, Livy, and their daughter Clara, then in her early 20s, to places like Australia, New Zealand, India, Sri Lanka, and South Africa. He publicly paid back all the debts he was no longer legally responsible for after declaring bankruptcy. He finished up his tour with some time in England. It was the summer of 1896, and his other two daughters, Jean, 16, and Susie, 24, were set to join the family. The plan was that the girls would sail in from New York and land in London on August 12th. But the 12th came around, and the girls didn't show. Shortly afterward, they got a cablegram. It said that Susie, purportedly her father's favorite, had fallen ill, but it was nothing serious. The concerned family cabled back, asking for more information. Quote, wait for cablegram in the morning, came the disquieting reply. The next day, Twain waited at the post office in Southampton until it closed, but no word came. Finally, after another agonizing day, the news arrived that Susie was sure to recover, but it would take time. Alarmed, Livy and Clara packed up their trunks and booked a steamer home to New York. They were only about halfway across the Atlantic when the next cable came through to Twain in England. It said simply, quote, Susie was peacefully released today, end quote. She was 24. His last image of her was at the train station in Elmira, New York, waving goodbye to him and Livy and Clara as they set off on the tour. He was keenly aware that his actions had separated his family for more than a year, that he hadn't seen his daughter's face in that time, and now he never would again. Like with his brother, like with baby Langdon, Twain again blamed himself for his daughter's death painstakingly plotting out every decision, every negligence, real or perceived, that supposedly caused it, crucifying himself as her killer. Something changed for Twain then. His world permanently darkened. His tendency toward cynicism and bitterness found new energy. Those who knew him believed he never truly recovered from Susie's death. The family continued to live overseas in England, Austria, and Switzerland until 1902. Clara Clemens used the time to study music, particularly voice, and she would become a respected contralto, though her career was limited. In 1903, Livy's health began to falter. She had never been a particularly robust woman after the illnesses of her youth, and she was now rapidly declining. On a doctor's advice, the family relocated to Florence, Italy for the warm weather. But kind climates can't stop heart failure, and Livy got worse. Doctors advised that Twain stay away from Livy so as not to excite her too much. They were apart for much of her final months, though he would write her love notes twice a day. Occasionally, Twain would break the rules to see her. Livy died in June of 1904 in Florence, aged 58. She was cremated and her ashes interred in the family cemetery back in Elmira. While Susie's death remained an unspeakable, raw tragedy, Livy's unmoored Twain from his sense of self. She had truly been his better half for 34 years, not ever seeking to change who he was fundamentally, but always encouraging him to choose to show the world his warmer, compassionate nature. 
Clara was also devastated. She mourned publicly for many months, wearing not only black but also a veil over her face. Emerging from his own slow grieving process, her father, in 1906, suddenly, dramatically, began appearing in public only wearing white. Head to toe, white jacket, white shirt, white pants, white shoes. If you have an image of Mark Twain in your mind, he's probably wearing all white, right? It's known as the author's signature look, but most people don't know that he only adopted it in the last years of his life. And when he debuted the look, it caused, without exaggeration, a nationwide sensation. It's easy to think, what's the big deal about a guy wearing an all-white suit today? But it was considered a borderline unhinged move when he appeared in the getup for the first time at a Senate hearing about copyrights in December. The December part is the key. White or light-colored suits for men weren't unheard of in the summer months, and Twain wore and saw them all the time in Bermuda, which he insisted on pronouncing Bermuda, a vacation spot he frequented. But to wear one to a formal event in the dead of winter was, in those days, like coming to a party in a wedding gown or going to a funeral in a bathing suit. The media went wild for it. Newspapers ran headlines about Twain's resplendent and remarkable outfit in defiance of winter. Twain enjoyed this attention immensely. He was never shy about being front and center, and his new habit seemed to provide an endless spotlight. When questioned about his sartorial choice, and everybody questioned him, he explained by saying that he simply found light-colored clothing a much happier and more pleasing fashion choice. And because he couldn't force the rest of the world to dress a certain way, he would now do it himself. It seems that two things were happening simultaneously. Twain was asserting control over his grief, publicly casting it off by going to the opposite extreme of the traditional symbol of mourning. Secondly, he was fully embracing the rambunctious, flamboyant part of his personality that Livy had tried to check when she could. It speaks to just how famous Twain was that the day after the same copyright Senate hearing at which he debuted his white suit, he wandered over to Teddy Roosevelt's White House and casually told the doorkeeper, quote, I want the usual thing. I want to see the president, end quote. And then he did. Twain's last years were marked by instances of him taking full advantage of his celebrity, perhaps even pushing to see how far he could go almost as if he knew he only had a little time left. Twain's pace of life suddenly quickened. He leased a house on Fifth Avenue in New York City, built a mansion in Reading, Connecticut, threw and attended lavish parties, maintained flirtations with Broadway actresses, and traveled frequently to Bermuda. He met the British monarchs, King Edward and Queen Alexandra, in conjunction with a trip at which he was awarded an honorary degree from Oxford. For someone who quit school at the age of 11 and never had another minute of formal education, this honor meant a lot to Twain. So much, in fact, that he later wore his Oxford graduation robes to his daughter Clara's wedding. Twain had a doting secretary, Isabel Lyon, who gained a good deal of influence over Twain's personal life and finances after Livy died. It's thought by some historians that she was purposely driving a wedge between Twain and his surviving daughters, 
hoping to marry the much older man and attain control of his estate. Jean, in one of her violent moods, allegedly attacked Lyon twice in 1906, the same year Twain debuted his white suit. These alleged attacks apparently convinced Twain to send Jean to something called an epilepsy colony in another part of the state. Jean begged to come home, but Twain refused, perhaps fearing he couldn't care for her, or perhaps under the sway of Lyon. Now things get really complicated. Facts leading up to the situation are murky, but it's undisputed that Lyon, for a time, had power of attorney over Twain's affairs, and he began to suspect that she was embezzling his money. Clara was also lobbying her father against Lyon, because supposedly Lyon was threatening to expose Clara's alleged affair with her married accompanist. Mm, Don't try to follow the twists and turns too closely. Entire books have been written on just this subject, trying to make the case. Almost none of this has been definitively proven, one way or the other. Right. What we do know for sure is that Twain fired Lyon in April of 1909, wrote a 429-page manuscript about her, calling her a liar and a thief, and immediately brought Jean home to Reading. Jean became her father's secretary after that, and with Clara living in Europe with her husband, threw herself into the domestic duties of the house. But her homecoming was short-lived. On December 23, 1909, after decorating the house for Christmas and dining with her father, Jean retired to her room. She was found dead the morning of Christmas Eve, apparently having drowned in her bathtub after having an epileptic seizure. Twain had now watched three of his four children and his beloved wife go to the grave. As Albert Bigelow Payne, his biographer and friend staying with the Clemenses that Christmas, reports, one of Twain's greatest fears was what would happen to Jean after he was gone. He tried to comfort himself with the thought that he didn't have to worry about her anymore and that her struggles to manage her condition were ended. In that respect only, her death was a relief. When her body was laid out in the house awaiting burial, Twain remarked to Payne, quote, I have been looking in at Jean and envying her. I have never greatly envied anyone but the dead. I always envy the dead." It's published statements like these that cast perhaps too dark a pall on the last years of Twain's life. Most of the time when people learn about Mark Twain, they're taught that his last years were spent brooding, alone and lonely, that he drank too much and regretted outliving so many of his friends and family. Yes, his last years were grooved with huge personal tragedies and periods of depression, but he also remained social and traveled, genuinely engaging with friends and fans until more or less the day of his death. He even started a club, and this is going to sound suspect, for girls between the ages of 10 and 16, called the Angelfish and Aquarium Club. The girls were his angelfish, and he corresponded with them, had them over to his house, and took them to cultural events. Mm, Right, that does sound a bit odd. I know, but there were never any accusations of impropriety or abusive behavior. According to Twain, he viewed them as the grandchildren he never had. So why girls and not boys? Maybe he was reliving his daughter's childhoods. Maybe he enjoyed that they were more freely affectionate with him, that he could be flirtatious and tease them, but since they were prepubescent, his actions didn't have the same lecherous undertones. Honestly, it's impossible to say now. 
and Clara eventually put a stop to the club, calling it improper. The point is, for someone who is traditionally given out to be a bitter old codger at this time in his life, he was also warm, optimistic, and playful. History, almost as a rule, flattens the textures of a life as dynamic as Twain's. Research and retelling are more often acts of omission than revelation. His biographer, Payne, wrote that his appeal as a writer and public figure was that he was limitlessly human, an apt encapsulation of his perfectly imperfect persona. Two weeks before he was born, in 1835, Halley's Comet, which is visible from Earth every 74 to 79 years, arced across the sky in its closest approach it would make until 1910. In 1909, Twain said, quote, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It is coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said, no doubt. Now here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together. They must go out together. End quote. And he was right. Twain died of a heart attack on April 21st, 1910, the day after the comet was seen closest to the sun. He was buried in the Langdon family plot in Elmira with the rest of his family. Clara commissioned a monument for the family plot that was 12 feet, or two fathoms, tall. An eternal Mark Twain to greet mourners and admirers, assuring all those who seek adventure that safe passage lies this way. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every other Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media or on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Shannon Deep and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.